Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today is Katie Drakey, and um, I'm excited to have her on the show. Um, it's another one of those that has been a few months, maybe even longer in the making, um, which is always uh, good when you finally find the time and you know what you wanted to do months or a year ago, actually you're now doing. Um, and people's schedules open up. So it's Katie, um, thank you so much for making the time. Absolutely. It's so good to be, to be with you again and finally get a chance to talk. That's great. So um, what we always do is um, the kind of the foundation is for you to just sort of start off with a little exhilarated. I know you have an amazing resume, um, but take everyone on a very quick, very quick journey through it. Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, so a local yokel here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, graduated from the University of Washington, and my first job out of college was in a software company. Um, it was a classic sort of first job where I was working at a junior level, uh, and my responsibility was setting up the college recruiting program for all of these engineers that we were trying to recruit away from California to come to Seattle and and help us develop our software. And so really quickly, really immediately, I was able to take, or able to realize really just this sort of translation and fluency in technology and what it allows you to do in terms of being successful with building relationships and getting people to galvanize behind an idea. Um, shortly after that though, uh, you know, all the learning you do in your first job, I made a really good friends with our head of marketing and he kind of took me under his wing and I started to realize that's kind of where I wanted to figure out what to do next. And my next move after that was to an ad agency that had all tech clients. And it was an agency that had um, a PR wing, um, a graphic design wing. I joined that team and helped to build up the, the web team, which was at that point in whenever it was, 1999, um, kind of the newest fangled toy that you get to play with in the marketing mix. And so these, these new tech companies were popping up all over the place. This is still the dot-com boom time. Um, they needed names, they needed graphics, they needed help. How, how would they launch themselves? How would they position themselves with media? And they needed to have a presence on the web and a way to you know, market themselves. And I did that for a couple years and then moved to a, um, a digital agency proper and spent a couple years kind of working at digital agencies. Um, uh, projects that may seem kind of silly now, but at the time were things like we built an intranet for Starbucks uh, so that they could, as they were expanding into China, they could do asset uh, transfer and they could you know, set up that business from afar. Or we would build the first website for a bank and we would host it on site in our office and we would charge for server time server space and also website maintenance you know those funny things that were kind of at the beginning of those days um fast forward a little bit uh in time uh became a mom got married had two kids bought a house um kind of saw this road rolling out in front of me very clearly which actually kind of frightened me a little bit as opposed to excited me because i i didn't want to be able to see that far down the road i wanted there were some things that I wanted to do when I was younger that I felt like I wasn't able to do uh, because I wasn't experienced enough. But now that I had the experience, I had so many more 
responsibilities. Um, and one of those things I really wanted to do was work abroad. And I decided I was just going to dedicate a year of my life to trying to figure out how to make that happen. Um, Fast forward a little bit, I was able to get a job offer from Widening Kennedy uh, to work in the Amsterdam office, um, which felt a lot like going from Seattle, working in smaller agencies, to moving abroad and working on big global clients, basically it was like going to the major leagues. And so there was a big learning curve that I experienced joining that planning team in Amsterdam and working on the Coke account, Nike account, Honda, a couple other local accounts. Um, it was uh, staggering, but also like one of the, my biggest growth moments, I think, in my career. And I met some of the most amazing colleagues that I'm still remarkably in touch with. 10, 12 years later, we're still following each other's careers. We're still in, you know, in support of each other. Um, it was really a special time and place. Um, after that, I, I moved down the street to 180 for a while um, and worked on, you know, DHL and Western Union and a little bit for Adidas and through that time when Adidas left 180 uh, they went through a series of really pulling a lot of people out of that agency and during that time that was the first time that I went client-side and worked for Adidas um, in Amsterdam it was a global role um, but that office was based on digital strategy and also running the the media side of uh, the company it was through the London Olympics so it was a really dynamic time to be doing that work um, Fast forward a little bit from there, and uh, I don't know if you know Sadiq Gohill, but he's also a, a former planner, and he also used to work at Wyden Kennedy, and in the year, I think it was 2012 at this point, um, he had moved home to Australia and was um, heading up the Droga 5 office in Sydney, and they had just won Qantas, Woolies, and Telstra, three, three of the really largest um, uh, companies and brand names in Australia, and through that growth, really wanted to bring a strategy person into their office who had spent time outside of Australia and on some other global accounts and through the, our network of you know planning folks um, he was looking for someone and I immediately raised my hand I had never even been to Australia I had you know have all of those wonderful ideas in my mind of what it might be like but I had never actually been there and that's where really marrying the right person comes in <laughs> where he was like yeah let's do it and we just packed up the kids and we moved to the other side of the planet. And I got to spend some really interesting time understanding the you know, Australia, New Zealand phenomenon, the, the way business works there, the way the culture works there, and really get in under the hood of some really interesting businesses. Um, particularly airlines was really fascinating with the brand side and also the frequent flyer side. And um, we also got to do uh, a pitch for a beer company, for Tiger Beer out of Singapore, which was really cool. All the really interesting um, consumer research we were able to do across Southeast Asia. So I just, again, a big growth moment. Mm. Um, around that time though, I was connected to a friend at Nike um, who put my name in for a role and I started talking to Nike, um, but that role ended up not being the right match. We both kind of agreed it a couple months in after a few conversations, but once I was kind of in the bloodstream, it meant shortly thereafter, there was a different role that was a really good match and at that time we had been away from home for about six or seven years and we had the only grandkids <laughs> on the other side of the planet and uh, when this opportunity came to move back to the Pacific Northwest we realized this we should probably take it that we weren't really sure if it was going to come up, come again and also it, it's Nike it's a chance to do things at a really big scale and having worked on the brand from the agency side in the past I had a real good sense of you know the power 
that you have um, at your fingertips when you're working there. And so um, I joined Nike in the brand innovation space, which was a team specifically set up to look at new concepts, new ideas, and develop them through pilot programs and test and learn, and then embed them into the, the natural sort of like blood flow and, and cadence of the, the business units. Um, since then, I've had a, a myriad of different roles. Um, for a while, I was running global media during the Brazil Olympics. So that was really fun because we had a really ambitious content distribution and publishing agenda at hand, um, but we needed partners to do it. And so we had this really cool sort of like pre-event time where we were talking with Twitch and with Twitter and um, with, you know, Facebook and, you know, the cast of characters you would, could imagine to figure out how we were going to interconnect this unique publishing model for real-time coverage of the games through the lens of our athletes. Um, after that, I was sent abroad for a while to Tokyo. And, um, sorry? I said you basically became a media company. Uh, for a very short time, that's what it felt like, actually. We were pulling together basically some of the superpowers, you know, the different platforms had available to them and and get, um, asking them and encouraging them, sometimes politely, sometimes forcibly, to work together on, on, on this um, in, endeavor. And um, and as in, in as typically happens in these big, big sort of like cultural moments, you know, creating new tech. Um, creating new things that those platforms that to go then get to go and figure out how to market and sell to to other brands in the future. So it's a it's a really um, it's a really fertile time those those like three to six month uh, you know initiatives. Um, after that, I was sent abroad to Tokyo for about two and a half years. Um, the membership agenda was growing inside of Nike North America was um, really plugging it in and was seeing good work. Um, Japan at the time was a geography and wanted to be the next geography that would take it on board. And so I was sent there to hire a team, build a team um, and develop that muscle for that geography. And while I was there, there was a, a restructuring of the company. And so my remit spread from being just about Japan alone to also including um, Korea and Australia, New Zealand, um, Southeast Asia, in India, <laughs> and then a couple Latin American uh, countries in there as well for good measure. Um, but it was a really good exercise of starting something from nothing, um, working cross-culturally, which for me, I had spent time in Europe, of course, but hadn't spent working time boots on the ground in Asia, which was a completely different and amazing learning experience for me. Um, and then that fun experience of trying something in one market and then figuring out how to um, quickly ramp it up across multiple markets. Um, you know, really utilizing what's same, but never losing sight of what makes them distinctive and unique. Now, at the moment, I'm working for Nike Women, which has been an amazing, almost like full circle back to home for me personally as uh, a former athlete, maybe even still currently frustrated athlete <laughs> who has an injury and can't work out at full strength right now. Um, also a mother, someone who is a feminist, someone who is really mindful of the equality agenda and is working at a brand that has a lot of weight that can be thrown around, you know, for the good of all. And it's not um, without trepidation and it's not without, um, you know, uh, you know, landmines around you that you need to be mindful of and navigate. 
but we have some of the most amazing female athletes on our roster these days who are very vocal and very prominent about a lot of the things that our internal employees believe. And it's a super exciting time to be working at Nike on Nike women. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled up, just absolutely thrilled for it. We just recently launched this month, um, our first ever maternity collection. So when women do become pregnant and begin their journey into motherhood and parenthood and a completely different chapter of their life, that they're supported by us and we're not um, turning away at a really important time where we know often women can leave sport just because of you know the drama that's going on in their physiology, but and also just how their time and ability to focus on themselves and their fitness can can ebb and flow. So that's where you find me today um, in, in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, working from home and um, trying to change the landscape of sport for, for women everywhere. Amazing. Um, so my first question, because I, I think we go back a long way and we actually go back to Seattle, um, where I first landed in the United States. And I, I thought quite a good question might be, given that you've got um, some global experience that you can kind of, what is it, you look at the Northwest and, and it's a very misunderstood place. Um, you know, I remember, I remember being up there and, um, you know, really liking it um, and then being very surprised when I went to San Francisco that nobody really understood it and it wasn't exactly that far away. Um, but when you actually kind of look at it, you've got Amazon, you've got Microsoft. I mean, the, the number of massive consumer-centric brands that come out of the Northwest mm -hmm. is quite, per, you, know, you know, punching above its weight. It's quite, why do you, why do you, what do you think that is? What is it about? It, you know, it's, it's, it's not Silicon Valley. It was pre-Silicon Valley. What is it about the Northwest that, uh, Nordstrom is another, of course. Yeah, well, I'm, of course, I'm massively biased because <laughs> that's my home. Uh, my parents are also from the same region. My mom grew up in Eastern Washington. My dad's from Butte, Montana. Like we have this sort of West Coast, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, dig in and get the work done. Sort of ethos, sort of DNA. I, I remember going to university and having people come out to UW. There was, you know, there's a really strong medical school there, a strong journalism school. Um, and people who had come to Seattle would tell me it feels really closed off here, that maybe people have a little bit of a coolness about them. Um, it's hard for me to break, break through. And I, I've, I kind of looked at them like, well, you know, and this is going to sound really flippant, but this was, you know, probably a university student response, but it was like, nobody cares what your family name is out here. You know, nobody cares, you know, what high school you went to or what, what your dad does. Like you come out, out here, it matters what you do and what you build with your hands. And there's sort of this, um, a little bit of sort of like the Nordic humility, I guess. There's there's a, a huge Nordic community in the Northwest. So there's a little bit of a, a little bit of that and like a close to the vestness. Um, I don't need to tell you that I'm capable because I will show you. Um, and uh, the trappings and, and trappings of like um, 
having gone to a particular school or having a certain name or having certain money in your bank account like is irrelevant and actually a distraction. So I think there's there's you know Boeing is also in the Pacific Northwest started there. Um, there's a, a an incredibly strong sort of like mariner um, seafaring community. Um, it's it's a lot of sort of like blue collar chutzpah, I guess, and overlaid with um, a sort of intelligentsia that's like rooted in coffee and reading and 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 um, and, and, a, and a tactile relationship with nature. And you kind of mix all that stuff together. And when you, when you infuse it with a, a jolt of electricity called entrepreneurialism, it creates, I think, a certain type of company um, that overemphasizes what you're doing versus what you're saying. Um, basic branding, not um, just really just show up and do the job and, and serve your customer. I like think about like what Nordstrom has done I remember like there was led their legends in the Pacific Northwest, even as a high school student, like where would you go and buy your most expensive uh, basketball shoes every year? You'd go and buy them from Nordstrom because if they blew out, you could take them back because everybody's heard the story about the guy who bought the tires from the tire shop and returned his tires to Nordstrom and Nordstrom figured out how to get him his rebate because the tire shop wouldn't take him back. And there's just all these stories. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember, I, I remember being up there and, um, working on working on Washington Mutual and putting a call into REI saying we've got all these bankers they're they're really pretty boring and you guys are pretty damn cool how about we come hang out with you guys for a day and kind of do a workshop and they were like totally cool and you know yeah come on over just we'll do it in the flagship we've got space and and it was just you know you know, it wasn't so. There's, there's more than just two companies. I mean, it's sort of there's there's a number of them, and they they yeah. operate in a, in a sort of a different level. Yeah, I worked on Washington Mutual as well, and they were an incredibly, again, a humble group of people. Um, and REI was a place that everybody wanted to work, and not work at corporate. They wanted to work as a green vest. You know, they yeah. wanted to be one of the experts on the floor yeah. who could go out in the mountains on the weekends and come back and share that experience with a hundred other people during the week. Um, yeah, there's a certain like reverence for people who really know because they've done it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. so, um, did you, you know, I always think what's interesting to me is that I'm, I'm of a generation. I grew up in sort of classic, Adland, you know, with the 60 second TV commercial and the 30 second TV commercial. And it was, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you, well, I'm very interested in the sort of the dichotomy that exists between the classic brand generation, or I consider myself, and then the digital generation. And this, this sort of, this, this being a, it, it's been a it's been a fraught relationship mm -hmm. you know that, that eventually i think the brand generation kind of have to concede that the sort of digital world sort of won and and maybe and 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 maybe that's not 
what they wanted, but unfortunately, that's the reality. And I think I don't really think of it as winners and losers, though. I think about it just as like roles, um, and there's maybe just um, slightly different roles to play. Like I kind of came into advertising, I kind of backed into it. Um, starting off in the digital side. The first time I actually worked at a traditional ad agency was actually on Washington Mutual in Seattle at a place called Sedgwick Road. And that was the first time I had, I had experienced the making and the production of print advertising and television advertising and even radio advertising. Yep. Everything else I had done previous to that had pixels connected to it. And so it was, it, it was a humbling learning experience for me that I knew I needed to round out that side of myself. I was really uncomfortable for a couple of years. Um, after that time, I, I spent, um, I was a new mother at this time and I just wanted a freelance job. And so I took a year long freelance assignment with IDEO that had an office in, um, in Bellevue, just a, a couple blocks away from Microsoft. And we did a lot of internal Microsoft programs, but also a couple from Motorola. And, um, that's where, I had the epiphany of, oh, damn, if I could go back to school right now, which obviously I'm not going to do because I have a six-month-old baby, I would want to go back to school for interaction design. Because for me, that felt like the future of where branding would eventually land. Um, it was going to be about words, yes, and pictures, yes, and moving pictures, yes, and sound, and then dy dynamism and, di and dynamics, kineticism of the brand. What is, what is this human to human interaction look like? Sometimes human computer interaction. What is the give and go that's taking place here? Uh, designing those interactions sounds just like so delicious. And so that was an, again, another year of just like marinating in something that was new and so exciting. But right after that, I took a job with a, with a more most totally analog Luddite environment that I could have experienced with a classic graphic brand designer, had a small firm, there was only four of us. And one of our clients was REI who had come to this designer and said, we want to rebrand ourselves. And we went through this massive exercise around understanding the heritage of the brand and the space of the outdoor community and all these things. And the ultimate playback that we came back to REI with was, we don't think you should change your logo at all. But there's a couple of things we think you should be doing with the way that people experience the relationship of, of uh, that, that a customer can have over time with REI. And so there was more exercise around wayfinding in their new flagship store. And then there was this really great exploration we did with the REI products where people come to REI because they are they are really doers. They are the people who are out on the weekends and they're serious about it and they're looking for the best stuff and, but not the best stuff, like the most expensive stuff necessarily, but they want quality and they want understanding. And so in the labeling system for all of the jackets, all of the tents, all of the sleeping bags, we made small tweaks um, to the language and everything now said how much it weighed. So if you were to say, Oh, here's this sleeping bag. And I look at the, at the, the tag, it says, yes, what's in it. And it tells you how much, because one of the fundamental issues of backpacking in the Pacific Northwest is you have to, you have to carry it on your back. So that just that simple, tiny little thing created an interaction of REI gets me so well, cause they know that I'm going to put this in on my back and I'm going to carry it for probably three days. Yeah. Um, 
So like a hierarchy of information needs of, the, of all the information you could, couldn't put on there, this was the most important you could Yeah, even. but it was interesting going from IDEO, from the, the office that I was working in was part of a discipline called Technology Enabled Experiences. Mm. And that's what that, so it was embedded in tech. And then I went, swung the pendulum to the other side and went to this person who was just talking about the real world. There was no REI app at this point. There was very little e-commerce. Just about the store. Over time, as I started swirling in all these different places, like you realized it's actually supposed to be all of these things working in harmony, but just the world just quite isn't there yet. And I feel like we're starting to turn the corner into this world now. And it's some of the most exciting work that I feel like we're getting a chance to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, I, I mean, I think from an advertising agency perspective, it was, you know, the, the reality is there's so many other ways for a brand to interact. You know, the, the, the number of ways a brand can interact have exponentially increased in the couple of decades you know, we've been working. And um, what you end up with, in, I mean, I was starting to do an exercise on LinkedIn to try and actually see how many job titles there were with strategists in the title. And it's, it's just extraordinary. It's just like, there's gotta be 50, you know? Wow. Um, and, um, you know, from the purest, it's like, well, what exactly are they involved in? And, you know, um, the reality is it, 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 it's, it's a fragmentation. It's not, now we, now we got to a world and you must see this yourself where you sort of, yeah, you need oversight at a high level that somebody who kn knows a lot, you know, what do you call it? What do you call it? Your, your t-shirt or you, you know, a lot, you know, a little about a lot of things Yeah. and you've got the, and then you've got the people who are just super deep. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, it's the, the reality is with the social channels or interactive experiences that are on tablet versus a mobile or versus one channel versus another, you know, it's becoming increasingly specialized. Yeah. I mean, yeah. principles and fundamentals apply, but, you know, when you're in the weeds and you're designing or making, then you need to be so, you need to be very attuned with what the latest technology allows you to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the big ch challenges right now yeah. is um, the need to be native everywhere. <laughs> and there's so many places. Um, I think strategically it's for me and from some of the exercises that I've been a part of over the years, <clears throat> it really begs that sort of like, that sort of media strategy muscle where you're like, well, do we need to be everywhere, everywhere? Or is it really, we need to pick a lane and mm -hmm. we need to be on these certain channels for these certain reasons. And we can create like a, uh, a focused ecosystem of, uh, of, of channels that have different reasons to exist or reasons for us to exist within them in a native way. Um, I think sometimes when there's indecision or maybe, brand FOMO where you're like, you're just 
everybody seems to be on TikTok. We got to figure it out. It's like, well, do you like, let's actually think about it for a minute. Maybe it makes no sense for you to be on TikTok. Or I was talking to a, a colleague who works at a, um, a toy company recently. And they're like, we're trying to figure out TikTok, but actually TikTok is kind of dangerous for kids. Like it's not a totally safe environment, and, but we know that kids are there. So we're trying to figure out how to navigate some of these spaces. And, 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 some, and some of these spaces are actually evolving so quickly. They don't have, they don't have safety guardrails today. They might have them tomorrow. Like, so it, it does take concerted effort, attention and resource. Um, you know, to do it well. Uh, I, what I what I find is the FOMO thing tends to get in the way, um, and and but it goes hand in hand with knowing who you are as a brand. And and it goes what, back it goes back to fundamentals. I mean, you, you know, if if you have the guardrails, if you have the north stars, and you have all those things, you you can quickly filter out what's good, what's right. I, I guess. Yeah, signals and noise. Yeah, there's a lot of noise. Um, and some of that noise will turn into a bona fide signal and you should probably pick up that signal and figure out what to do with it. Um, I mean, I think what's, I think the interesting, the, the interesting thing is more of a, a cultural dynamic between who the author is, right? So, you know, the company, you work with companies where athletes were so much part of the brand, mm -hmm. whereas the the switch and balance has switched over to the end user. I mean, not that the athlete doesn't matter, they still matter, but it's almost like we've, consumers have got way more athletic and way more tech savvy and way more creative. And athletes have got way more human-like and real people-like. And there's, yeah. sort of that, there's sort of a, a melding of the two. There's sort of now there's there's less of a these guys on the ivory tower and these guys down here listening to them. And it's it's yes, there's still you know a level of respect. There's still these individuals who are supreme performers, but there's that yeah, that point of access has been created in a way that that that's for me is what a lot. Yeah. Has been transformed. The, that common macro theme about democratization of things, um, and having worked on, you know, these two sport brands over the last ten years, and doing a ton of consumer insights work that goes with working for these kinds of companies, and on even when I was at Wyden working on Nike, the the trend was starting to become quite obvious over the last, you know five to 10 years, that the democratization of tools that we've witnessed also has led to people seeing um, a, a less of excitement about the super elite standing on top of the mountain with their gold medal thumping their chest. That's, that's actually not as motivating as it maybe once was. Yeah. And people are finding, because they can access so many more peers, or even people who are peer plus one, like maybe a year or two or a life stage or two ahead. Um, that's actually where a lot of the inspiration and aspiration is sitting. And you've seen some of the you know, celebrity and actor community and designer community, musician community and elite athlete community start to come down off the mountaintop. You know, they have recognized that they've created too much distance. Um, 
it has affected the ways in which sports marketing contracts are created. Um, and how do you draw up sports marketing contracts that incorporate platforms that existed today but didn't exist tomorrow? And what is, you know, so there's all these really interesting dynamics that have impacted what once was maybe two or three decades worth, worth of traditional advertising and marketing that was fairly familiar. Yeah. and probably iterated and you know evolved fairly slowly compared to right now um but yeah some of it was the consumer landscape and the experience of people in the world where technology has made so many different things possible um change where inspiration is coming from yeah um and then you have to grab then you have to grapple with well then if we're a, a if we're a brand that believes in you know the potential of sport and um the inspiration of individuals who have overcome challenges and who have created great results in their life how do you do that in this in the, through this new lens um which we're still you know we're still grappling with now because it's still changing m m many of our elite athletes and even when i was with Adi, the same thing was true, um, had more followers than the brand did yeah. and were their own brands in their own right. And so yeah. it, it's, it creates really interesting dynamics that are not um, stable. You know, they, they're in flux at all times. You're looking at the Lionel uh, Messi yeah. situation in Barcelona. Where it, it just, you know, extraordinary that, you know, this individual has a $700 million release clause, <laughs> yeah. you know, sort of like the GDP of a small African nation. Yeah. When you look at what someone like LeBron is doing, um, he created a school that is challenging yeah. the way education is run in the yeah. United States, yeah. uh, enabled students to have a bicycle, a meal, and created education for parents who wanted to get their GED if they didn't have it. I mean that is that is a com that is a completely different new school model that is performing above. Which is really interesting when you when when you think you know in years gone when you signed an athlete what their demands were the demands were you know I want a line of shoes um, da 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 now they're coming in saying. I want to do good in my community. Uh, or I, 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 I want to. I want to create positive change. How are you going to enable me? Yeah. Help me yeah. achieve that, which is really interesting. It's a yeah. really interesting. Uh, Even to like the, the gender lens as well. Like sport is notoriously celebrated with an emphasis on male athletes and male sports and male sporting leagues and all these things. Contracts were written for male bodies. Female bodies get pregnant. You know, female bodies have, have children to take care of. And those contracts weren't, you know, working really well for, for the female yeah. athletes. They weren't working. So we've, re in recent times, you know, had to really reckon with, I think we need a different model for our female athletes. And these are all new developments. Um, in, in very recent times, when you think about, you know, Nike's coming up on its 50th anniversary not too shortly from now. Um, and these are, these are new, new dynamics um, that have been a, probably a long time coming, but um, 
totally hitting hitting the note at the right time now yeah. um, and is, is really opening the door for even more conversations about more different types of dynamics which is fabulous yeah which is really which is really exciting it seems like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of um been buried you know in the way that women have been treated or the way men have have been coaching or across a number of different sports that mm. you know is probably got to change it was it was you've probably heard the classic statement of pink it and shrink it like make a cool pair of shoes and then make them smaller and pink for the ladies and that's just basically a generic way of describing how a lot of the sport industry has looked at women like we'll make it for the guys and then maybe we'll make it smaller and pink for the ladies but we won't change it we won't actually design it for them and a lot of the work that's actually happening inside nike right now for the women's side of the business is about by her for her and the women's maternity collection that's coming out this month in september um just launched actually on the 17th was designed by mothers inside of nike for mothers it's actually one of the most exciting assignments I've ever been a part of because it's really a gift. I mean, of, of impassioned employees who created this work to give to women out there in the world who they know are looking for this and needing this and wondering, does Nike see me? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, and this work was three years in the making. Mm -hmm. And if you ask some of the veterans <laughs> from the last couple of de decades before, some of, especially some of the women veterans, they'll be like, it's not the first time we've talked about it. So it's, it's great that it's happening now um, and it's super exciting work. Yeah, it's amazing how long things take, isn't it? You know, yeah. you, you know as, you're, as you're a planner, a strategist, or a trend forecaster looking at things, you always believe that there's, you always have a different time frame. I think you always think things are gonna happen faster than they do, and, and, uh, but maybe yeah. now. You know. And that's actually one of the interesting dynamics. I mean, I don't know how much this is coming up in your realm, but I know in my circles, I'm getting hit up by a lot of strategy folks of all um, stations in their career who are really curious about what it means, what, are the, what is it like to work on agency side and also client side? What are some of the positives and negatives and things that make you especially powerful or weak in these different environments and watch outs, all this, all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the things that's hard to read when you're on the agency side is just that internal turbulence. And there's a lot of, there's legacy people, there's legacy politics, there's metabolisms that are sometimes hard to read when you're on the outside. And frankly, they can sometimes be hard to read on the inside too. <laughs> but Coming like coming into the women's organization, and I've only joined it since March, so it's been you know six seven months, and really quickly I had to spend time figuring out what the legacy topics and issues that have gotten stuck that I can now keep my eyes and ears wide open for ways in which I can help them find a slippery slope to get rolling again. So much is about timing. Yeah. So much is about timing and, and a little bit about luck sometimes. I mean, we right now we've got Serena, we've got Megan Rapino, we've got Sue Bird. We have uh, incredible athletes who are so vocal right now. Um, we're in a beautiful position internally to be able to say, no, this is what our athletes are saying too. This is the right thing to do. And we're able to push things that maybe we're stuck. Um, but it, it can be hard to read those things 
uh, from the outside. But what I can say as a strategy person who spent the majority of my career on the agency side and has spent, <clears throat> you know, dabbled on the client side is what it feels like, you know, two years at Audi and seven at Nike. What planners are asked to do in an agency very rapidly, very quickly, very routinely. Cause you know, when you work in an agency, you're working not on just one client, hardly ever. <clears throat> you might be working on four or five and they might be radically different industries. You might be working on an airline and a beer um, and a perfume or something. Um, you have to understand all three of those businesses. You have to understand the dynamics of the clients. You have to understand where they're at in their time space trajectory around the brand and what they're working on. And then you receive briefs and you got to run and juggle. And the, the tempo and the metabolism side of the bigger brands is a lot slower. It's a bit more methodical. There's more gates and there's more discussions and alignments that need to take place. So when you come in as someone who's ready to just kind of and you're all and you're used to hoovering in a lot of information and synthesize 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 go into a meeting with the creative and be able to give them the three sentences they need not the two paragraphs or two pages you got from the client you're able to hit you know really sprint in between those milestones very efficiently and i didn't realize that until i got to nike and some of my colleagues were like I don't understand how you're going so fast and I don't, I don't understand how you're able to pivot so quickly. And, and it's like, well, if you can't pivot this quickly inside of an agency, you're not going to be good to anybody. You know, you're not going to, not going to have a chair for very long. So you start to realize like some of these skills that have become almost invisible to you because they are part of just the, the tapestry of working in an agency are sort of rare jewels in an organization where oftentimes there's folks who have been working there for 10 or 20 years and, and actually never did a tour of duty in that sort of environment and, and don't have a, a muscle memory to call upon in those moments. And I think another thing that planners are asked to do in agencies is go from wide to narrow really quickly and often. So what's the vision? Okay, how do we do it? You know, <laughs> where are we going to be 10 years from now? What's the brief? So, being able to go into a meeting with, you know, a fairly, you know, high level person about a, a strategy for the next three to five years and then turn around and take it into the next season's work into the brief and start planting seeds. Um, that feels quite natural given the work that we're asked to do on the agency side, but you can see not all of your peers on the client side will have had that mm. ability to develop that muscle. So, I mean, the one, the, the deficits to me seem to be um, lack of political savvy from mm -hmm. if someone coming from an agency just doesn't quite know they're sort of shielded a little bit from politics. I mean, if you're in a giant agency, I'm sure there's a ton of politics, but if you work generally, she's a different kind of politics. I yeah. think politics is always there, but I remember crashing into a lot of windows that I couldn't see. Yeah. Like just glass walls and, and windows and, clear objects that other people could see and I couldn't see. I just kept banging around <laughs> my first year or two. Um, and then but, business, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I don't think even the best, I mean, I think it's maybe the best planners, but I, I don't think agencies in the whole know how clients make money really. It's it. Well, I think some do and some don't like, yeah. I feel like 
when thinking about some of our agency partners, sometimes I actually understand the business better than my colleagues do. Um, but the way the business has shifted into direct everywhere, I mean, it's not just where I'm working. Sure. Um, it's, it's the world at large, writ large. I've actually been through COVID, like been connecting, and you probably are doing the same, like I'm connecting with a lot of people who I've only kind of known either through social media or through just like networking or friends of friends are reaching out and saying, hey, can I talk to you a little bit about this direct thing and can just noodle on it together? So I'm actually having these really interesting conversations with people from lots of different industries. And it's it's like the thing that everybody's trying to figure out. What is the what is the optimum degree of direct commerce for whatever your business is or, or service? And how does marketing embrace that? How does the brand live and breathe inside of that and express itself inside of that? So it doesn't feel transactional, sterile or robotic. Cause a lot of these direct interactions are, you know, um, programmatic or triggered not like triggered PTSD, but like <laughs> you do something and, and the communication is fired to you to say, we see you, you have made this selection. Therefore, here is this real highly targeted. I think it's, I think it's probably something when you, when you map out those very sophisticated journeys, yeah. you should see there's a difference between relationship and transaction. And, yeah. and, and the, the thing that I think the really clever brands have got to understand is, is how you nurture relationship. When I think when I think of athletics, and when I think of the amazing job you guys have done in um, in 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 being a partner in those relationships, not necessarily demanding a transaction, but being more d demanding of an action um, from from an individual that ultimately will lead to a transaction. And I think for for a lot of businesses. The sales cycles are longer. Um, they really struggle with where's the value add? You know, where are we adding value here? We're yeah. just we're just selling a coat, <laughs> and, yeah. and and they and they just you know they don't quite know how to. Um, what else can we talk about? <laughs> yeah, where what else is interesting? You know, what else is interesting? Like, what do we talk about when I'm not trying to sell you a coat? Like, if I go to a dinner party with you and there's four hours of you know table time. And in the first five minutes, I've tried to sell you the coat and then I've got nothing else to say. Like, we're not, you're not going to want to hang out with me very much. <laughs> My favorite coat story is, and I think this exemplifies like why we've gotten to, was this guy, I think it was in, I can't remember where he wrote this up, but it was a really well written piece. It was basically like, people have now, now completely understood and gotten what an Instagram ad is to the point that they can fake create the most compelling Instagram ad that says it's time for a winter coat, here's this, and they, they know how to shoot it, they know how to style it, they know how to present it, whatever elements of dynamicness need to be part of it, they can do it, and they can press the click click to buy, and you're totally sucked into this thing. So he said, you know, I'm there. I do need a new winter coat, it does come up on my Instagram feed, and I do press buy. Eight and a half weeks later, a tattered parcel arrived from China Mail, and something, <laughs> Um, resembling a old 70s carpet from Las Vegas is actually the coat. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's like, there's the, 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 the very nicely um, crafted fake 
mm. brand with absolutely nothing behind it other than a transaction which is of a horrible product. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think I think those um, you know with this, this interesting you know and I think there's people are trying really hard I mean I think you know from a, you know you, you always like I always think of Casper as a really interesting one right now you know yeah. like well, here were some guys that were really actually fundamental designers that asked themselves a design question, which is, do you need 750 different types of mattresses? You know, and does everyone need their own sleep number? Well, they actually, the answer they came up with was no, you just make one great mattress. And I just, I just wonder, I'm, I'm sort of part, it's part of a conversation of a lot of people where there's sort of greed starts to infect this model and suddenly you know, it's not about the mattress. It's about owning sleep or being the Nike of sleep. And you're like, oh, you, and, and I think, and I think in the, in the dream and chasing the dream, the investor dream, the billion dollar unicorn dream, I think people lose sight of their original foundation, which was, you know, we're, we're, we're starting out. We're actually kind of almost the opposite of a, of a, um, you know, a brand that builds builds itself on an emotional promise. We're really about making better products, so like a Silicon Valley model or Steve Jobs going, yeah, well, tons of people have made phones or made portable music machines. Just we're just going to make a way better one. Yeah. And, and and then they get into this thing. It's like the WeWork phenomenon. They get into the you know we're about shared shared office. No no no. We're about we. It's a whole it's a whole religion. <laughs> and, and it's almost like seeing everything you sort of sometimes said to clients, you know, this whole idea of this emotional world of a brand being actually really the last thing that some of these people actually need to be doing. And it's more like how they can lose their way. Um, yeah. I was, I was actually kind of advising a electric bike company the, a couple months ago. They just got some funding. There's a lot of people interested in bikes now more because, you know, yeah. Commuting on trains doesn't make sense. Commuting on buses is a little frightening, but if you, you can get on a bike or get a dog for love of money. Yeah, there you go. Um, and they were, they were really, you know, they were the founders and they were really proud as they should be of their beautiful piece of tech and this artifact that they had worked on for a number of years. It was just stunning. It really is something that would could be in a gallery somewhere or something. It was just a beautiful piece of technology, and they had really um, and gorgeous ambitions for where they wanted to take it. But I kept trying to engage them in to what end, like to you know, for what purpose is this? Um, is this about mobility? Is this about providing people with more mobility options? Is this about taking back the streets? Is this about getting cars off of the streets and getting bikes and providing more livable, breathable space? Like there needs to be an agenda here. You're going to be fight, you're fighting for something. What yeah. You like, are we an activist for mobility? Are we an activist for um, citizens having their streets back? Um, mm -hmm. What, what are, what are we, what are we rallying the troops again? You know, yeah, I, think I think that's, you know, one, there are two great questions. I mean, there are multiple great questions. I think that's definitely the one you want to ask. And then the other is, who are you for? 
and, and yeah. when and when and when they come back with that, just like a narrow, right? You could you could be doing way more. You know, you could. Yeah, there's way more here. Yeah, I mean, one of their statements was um, about how many millions of people they wanted to have on bikes by you know mm -hmm. at such a state in the future, and I was like, your bike is like a thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, do you have in your pipeline? something for um, the college commuter or for um, the mother who's taking her kids to school on her bike. I was just living in Japan. I saw that everywhere. It's yeah. Japan is a hilly city and mothers were taking their kids. They're all loaded up. It's almost like the, the Dutch thing that I saw in Amsterdam, except there's an engine in it, like, because you got to go up hills. It's not flat. Um, I said, if you're, you're, there's no cargo opportunity on your bike as it stands today. I can't go to the grocery store. Uh, so like you're limiting the types of runs that someone can do on this thing right now. Like, are you expanding that? And they're like, Oh no, we're, we're working on the battery. And I'm just thinking there's a, dis there's a dissonance here in what you're making and what you're saying. And there's like a vacuum that needs to be filled with um, a higher order goal. <laughs> you know, what does victory look like? Yeah. Well, it's interesting I to deliver us to victory. Yeah, it's really interesting when you, um, you know, because you could, you, you just get caught up in, you get, when you're, when you're making that, you're getting caught up in the details and you, you it's wood from the trees issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, you know, like spending so much time thinking about the battery that you're not thinking of use cases. And yeah. That stuff, yeah. 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 So what, <laughs> do you think we've learned or we are learning from COVID is my final question. Oh man. <clears throat> it's my favorite thing to think about actually, not because COVID is awesome and I love being trapped in my house, but I was, <laughs> I've just been having really stimulating conversations with people who I've worked with over the years, mostly planners and strategy folks. And because we're all seeing, I'm discovering some similarities and just um, the, there's a level of excitement in how broken everything has become and how, how all of the um, standardized mores of you know, the modern world are now being challenged. Um, let's take a, a simple one like restaurants. Um, in Seattle, I don't know if you ever had a chance to eat at Canlis, but Canlis is my favorite case study right now. The minute COVID hit and Seattle, and Seattle was hit pretty hard, pretty fast. They were one of the first big cities in the United States to really get under it. They immediately went to, um, they bifurcated their business into a coffee shop or a coffee truck, I think, that would roam the city and, de and deliver really good coffee. Um, a lunch, like a taco truck or something, or like a sandwich truck that would also, and then you could also still order like a really high-end meal. And for anybody who doesn't know what Canlis is, like it's one of the most beautiful, expensive, um, and also like legacy institutions in Seattle. Beautiful location over um, Lake Union, which took my dad there for his 60th birthday. Like it's just, it's really a special place, grand piano, live music, expensive wine. So it's, a, it's where you go to really have a special evening. And once they figured out that those things were not gonna quite do it, <laughs> they immediately pulled back into their home space, which was their beautiful meals. 
and they figured out how they could make them and deliver them at least in the city limits proper. And every night, the canless piano player would stream piano music live through Instagram. So there was many nights actually in the early days of COVID where you're kind of stressed out and you're in your kitchen and you're kind of nervously eating your dinner with your family. And we would open up the, the tablet and listen to the canless piano player. And he would take requests and dedications and he would talk and you'd see him all by himself in this empty restaurant playing the piano to all of the hundreds of people who were tuning in. Then that moved on to if you were to order the dinner on a Friday night through a couple months of the summer, it would be the, the, the package would arrive at your door with the bottle of wine that has been paired to the meal and your bingo card and a, and a code. So you line, log into um, a website and they would have a guy dressed in a tuxedo spinning a bingo thing. The piano player would be there to do interludes and transitions, and you could play bingo with a bunch of other people who had also bought that same meal that night. They've since now expanded their delivery radius, and once things kind of opened up a little bit later this summer, they had a, a beer garden that was outdoors. So this is just, they behaved so unlike what some restaurants did, which was like, oh my God, shutter the doors, shit, we're out of business. You know, like, they just, they went into like this iterative state of like, let's try coffee, let's try tacos, let's try sandwiches. Okay, let's go to our home base, let's do what we know best. Mm. Um, th there's a, another restaurant here in Portland that started dropping their menu like high heat sneaker drops. Like every day at nine o'clock, I think it is, you can log on to their website and they will sell a certain number. Yeah, I read about this place. Yeah, a certain number of dinners. They do two meals a week or something. And, and once they're sold out, they're sold out. Yeah. And so they're able to stay highly efficient and um, create desire, um, deliver high quality, and follow the COVID guidelines <laughs> depicted by the state so they can stay in business. And then locally here in my area, there is a, a theater restaurant. They've got two screens and there's a pub and indoor-outdoor seating. So when COVID hit, they couldn't do any of the screens, which was actually really big for them and pulling people in for dinners and food. And they tried to figure out what to do. So they've gone to, you can buy online and pick up at their front door and take out. And then they've set up a limited meal for the outdoors and um, they've allowed you to buy their, from their wine stock. So there's just, like that's just one, restaurants is just one sliver of all the ways in which different brands and businesses and enterprises are grappling with what have we done before and how much of that is even useful anymore because now we're in this new thing and it's all about where we go from here which likely may not even revert back it this is going to be a protracted experience for all of us i think ebola took five years to eradicate and it didn't even spread nearly as far as COVID has. I mean, it's gonna be a while. So it's, it's, there's a lot of untethering that needs to be done. And so long story short, I'm just having these really fascinating conversations with strategists who love to go, holy shit, the problems and the challenges and the puzzles are all yeah. new. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying, yeah, exactly. I've been saying, you know, it's, it's interesting. I did this thing, um, I was gonna do this thing with Wall. That's why we, actually, that's how I originally got in touch with you, right? So. Um, re in back in touch with you was um, about doing this thing with walk. So we were going to do this qualitative. They do a survey every year on the future strategy, and um, I, I, I said to them, I 
I pitched them, look, I think we need to do, we need to talk to CSOs one-on-one. I think we need to talk to CMOs one-on-one or senior marketing folks one-on-one. And I think we need to get a perspective to marry the results, like a qualitative perspective to marry the quantitative results. But anyway, various reasons, not least of which the can was canceled this year. Um, mm. uh, that got abandoned, but I did get involved in the report and I wrote something. They gave me the findings earlier. And, you know, what's interesting, is this just bizarre dichotomy between, um, there's never been, it's the tale of two cities, right? It's the best of times and the worst of times. It's never been a better time to be a strategist and there's never been a worse time to be a strategist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people are like calling on you or grappling with this whole thing right now. Uh, I, I, I think there's an added dimension, which is, um, you know, and Martin and Rob, you know, are, you know, the uh, other rah, rah, let's, let's blow shit up. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, I think a lot of strategists are like, you know, they're not allowed to blow stuff up anymore. It's too risky. I think they're being told by bosses to like pipe down and, you know, and, and, um, make it work. Yeah. Figure out a way to shoehorn that in there. So it sounds logical. Ah, so so the dream they've still have been sold of like, Oh, you're, you know, you're the, the catalyst to risk and provocation and, we need brave new ideas. And I think a lot of people are feeling, well, I'm not allowed to do that. Um, this is a risk intolerant environment. But I, I, I do feel like we have entered the time of this yeah. where things can be challenged. And that, yeah. that goes back to like a strategist who understands how money works and how the business works and how the PNL uh, fluctuates will be able to convince people of radical ideas. Yeah, well, I'm, what I'm really interested in right now, and, I, and I'm, and I, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of fallen by the wayside, but I did a lot of work on what I call the conditions for creativity. I basically said to myself, I asked myself a hypothetical kind of PhD question, which was, if I started all over again, what would I want to learn about more? And, and it was like, I felt like my learning about how creativity works was purely just based on, you know, seeing it in front of me and intuition versus any understanding and formal understanding of science. So I went back and like went back to looking at the science and then I sort of created a, a system which you can kind of audit your organization and say, do you actually, if you if you consider yourself to be a creative company, are you applying the conditions for creativity in its most optimal way? That's good. And um, so it'd be really, really, really fascinating to do that. And I think, and I think uh, a lot of people are um, frustrated with age. I mean, most of the people I talk to who are not working inside agencies are happy um, as consultants or working for small consulting companies. I think they feel they have a bigger canvas and they can take more risks. And mm-hmm. I think inside of agencies, I think, unfortunately, and Reed Hastings, a brilliant, you know, this brilliant quote because his new book that came out in the last week or so, which is there are creative businesses that are still run like factories. Yeah. And, and he, you know, and you look at, you look at the way they run, it's, it, you know, it's sports team. It's a sports team mentality. We want the best athletes to work together as a team to deliver the best things for our customers. And as soon as one of those pieces, you know, we move on. And the idea that, you know, and I, and I, and I think this whole notion that 
there's no such thing as a job for life at Netflix. You know, you, you work through these projects until someone says, yeah. and they, and they say, and they give you like massive severance and they introduce you to the alumni network and they say, thank you very much. And it's not, it's, it's just the way they work. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah. it's just it's very interesting. Actually, and coming from an agency, like you're like, yeah, okay, I know how that works. Yeah. That's cool. I'm going to, I mean, I don't know about you, but like every time I went to an agency, I felt like part of the reason I won the opportunity to go in the door is because they saw that I could bring something. Yeah. And, and also I recognized I wanted to walk in that door because there was something for me to learn there from either the people or the clients or wherever it was geographically located in the world. And the experience of walking into a new agency each and every time was you, in the first couple months that you're there, there's a lot of you sitting in a conference room with a bunch of other people and you're basically opening up your head and emptying it on the table for everyone to understand what you know and what you're bringing and cross pollinate as many people as possible about what, you, what you've got. The weird thing about going client side, and I had this, experience at both companies. And so I don't know if this is just the sporting world or whether it's companies in general, is there was not that level of curiosity that there was not a desire for people to say, Hey, tell me everything, you know, it's just like, here's your job. And so there was what, what Reed Hastings is talking about in terms of like a work experience where there's a ton of stuff that needs to get done and there's some people who are capable of doing that work and we're going to throw them against that work. And if for whatever reason, we don't have work that you know how to do and you're not valuable to us, it's not that we don't like you. We'll just send you the alumni crew and you can go and you're like, well, that's actually how agencies work. So I'm, I'm familiar with that. If I want to stay at Netflix, I'll skill myself, myself up. So I'm valuable all the time for all of the work that's coming. Um, and if I'm not paying attention or if I don't want to learn anything new, I can anticipate that my career would be shorter at that particular company. Um, but even at Nike, I've had, I've had seven jobs in almost seven years. Yeah. I have, I have often felt like the thing I, I was nervous both times going to work client side. Cause I thought I might get bored. I thought being out of the environment of agency where you're working across so many different disparate things and you show up in the morning, not really knowing if you're going to be asked to present to a CMO in the afternoon or not. So you've got like a nice laser, hidden in your desk somewhere just in case, like just being nimble all the time. I was worried that I would get into a corporate environment and it would be too slow and frustrating. And by happily in both cases, both Adi and Nike, I walked in going, whoa, that the floor is littered with gemstones of super cool projects and problems and puzzles and things to solve. I just, I'm just going to try to point, get myself assigned to as many of these delicious things as possible. Um, and so there are people that I work with who have been in the same roles for many, many years in a row and are really comfortable doing that. And that's how they're wired and they're happy. But for me, I'm wired to have diversity. And so seven jobs in seven years, totally, totally awesome. Like I've gotten a chance to put my fingers in so many different pots. Now I think it helps given where marketing is kind of heading, where you were saying earlier, the, the T thing. You know, being I now have this really broad T. I've had to look at media and I've um, had to do service design and I created pilot programs. I mean, I was in the back of house in stores in Japan setting up a test pilot for run training things. Like, what am I even doing here? Like, what am I? <laughs> but like, 
having to touch all these different nodes, then you go, all right, you want me to do it to, to stitch together the membership program? Okay, cool. Or you want me to do it because we're speaking to the gender of, you know, female athletes. You can take all those disparate things and go deep in a zone. And um, it feels like that's one of the special gifts of going inside of a big brand, at least one that, that allows people to explore in that way is you, you come out um, being that shape or being able to take that shape. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it, I, it's interesting when you've had the fortune, you've had the fortunate experience of working at companies that are about, well, what I would say is they're all about culture and creativity, every single one of them. But one of the, 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 the clients are about doing that at scale through a system. You know what I mean? It's like, you, you know, to be a successful sportswear brand for years, you need the culture, you need the creativity, but you also need the systems. Mm. Logistics and all those very left brain, you know, it's a perfect combination of very good left brain with very good right brain. And there's a lot of companies out there that just don't have the right brain. They just, they just have left brain and, and they don't know how, you know, CPG is classic, you know, where they're just sort of stuck and they don't know what they call innovation is another flavor of vodka. Mm. <laughs> or it's interesting, some of the folks I've been speaking with that are young companies and they've focused maybe the first three to five years on a known user problem that they've generated a solution around and they're feeding that audience group who has that known problem with the best of all they've gotten and they've learned and iterated. And now for the first time, they're looking up to the horizon line and going, okay, now we really want to grow and we want to have a brand. How, how do we do that? <laughs> because they've been you know, rightly so focused on making the offering really delicious and understanding their user base. But now they don't know how to communicate themselves to someone who isn't their user base. And those are also really interesting. Yeah, of course. Um, um, I'm cognizant of time. I just wanna, I wanna fire one more question yeah. at you. Scott Galloway does this. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm gonna change it. It's a, like a, a, a advice, it's, he says something advice to your 26 year old self. Um, I'm going to just do advice to a 26-year-old strategist, not oh, you. Yeah. Um, I think the best, the best thing is to understand, okay, first and foremost, move abroad and do your work in another culture. Nothing will humble you and teach you <laughs> as much. I, that's, that's the truth. Like living abroad is, for me, one of the most important and and something it's become now a part of who I am. My husband and I talk about when the kids are in college, where we're going to move to and how we're going to continue to live a slightly nomadic life till our end of days, because there's just so much joy in it. It slows time down because everything is different. Every day is a learning, a learning curve. Every big epic. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes a big epic fail. I mean, the humility that comes from it is really important as well, as well as being able to look back at your home country and see it more clearly than you've ever seen it before. 
for better or for worse, to miss it desperately and to criticize it, honestly, you know, because you can see it so well. So I think that's one um, learning, yeah, learning how to have that level of um, strategic empathy for people who you aren't is just really mind blowing when it works. I'm always like super insecure about it when I'm learning about, um, you know, Japanese high school students. What, what do I know about being a Japanese high school student? But I learned a whole hell of a lot about it. And I talked to a lot of those kids and <clears throat> I now do have a, a, several threads of instinct on that space that I can call upon. Um, and they stick and those, those consumers that you learn and, and you learn to love in that way, like a proper planner does, they stay with you forever. And um, I still recall working on Western Union when I was in Amsterdam, which is, you know, it's a money transfer company. And I remember as a kid seeing these ads on TV about you only use Western Union when you're in trouble. Like when there's an emergency, your car's broken down or you're in jail or something. But what I actually learned is like all of these, this millions of diaspora around the world who are using Western Union as a way to facilitate a better future for their family, to stay in touch and, and maintain um, ceremony and ritual, even though they're far away from home, you know, Chinese New Year, Western Union, we created red envelopes just for that one moment of time because they wanted to help make that ritual that we recognized it and it was, had meaning to it. We learned about how much distrust there is for banks in certain parts of the world and, and how Western Union is seen as like the only, the only one you would choose for that reason. And now that I know all about these people, I think about them. <laughs> and I saw Western Union is actually sponsoring one of the basketball teams in the playoffs right now. And I was like, oh, wow. Like made me, you know, had sparked that memory one more time. So I think for really stretching into another culture or a, or a zone that is not your wheelhouse is super important. And then just really understanding the business of things. Um, it, I think as, as a younger person, I was tempted to stick with the creative zone, just to really focus on being the best brief writer, being the most trusted strategist to the creative department, um, being the strategist that was selected to work on the most pitches and the juiciest assignments and, and really having that be all about the create, creative aspect of what I was offering. But I think once I got a little bit older and, and also I think I learned this probably from being on the company side is um, that without the business is seen as just saccharine by the real business leaders who are moving the budgets around and making the big choices. And I think the sweet spot that I'm constantly endeavoring to hit is an emotional heartstring that is universally like, um, you know, creates palpitations and has an impact on the PNL. And so, because if, if, if you can quash the PNL conversation, you can have any heartstring conversation you want. And but first of all, you've got to show that you're going to make money. Now, yes. And so that was the thing I think that was one of the big unlocks to come back around to the maternity collection and like mm -hmm. women is the female consumer, the mother, 
is our most valuable member. She's buying for her kids. She's buying for her spouse. She is buying gifting at the holiday season. We would love to see her buy more for herself with us. And by creating a collection that speaks directly to her and signals to her that she is right in our sights and we see her mm-hmm. is one of the first most important steps we need to take to acquiring and keeping mothers. So, you know, so I can, I'm, almost, I'm, almost, I'm almost visualizing the presentation now, which starts with the dollar opportunity and works its way through to the emotion of motherhood. Well, with, with a lot of things, like we always start with the consumer yeah. and we always start with the relevance and the heart and, and the, the humanity of yeah. them. And then the next straight slide, slide three <laughs> is, and here's the impact of the bottom line, which is why you're now going to allow us <laughs> to have this runway and in front of us. Um, I'm, I'm kind of being a little blase about it, but it, it, it's, it's kind of, if you can put the, the money conversation to bed, you now have a, a lot more rain to do mm-hmm. what um, Martin and Rob would like to do, <laughs> which is be the revolutionaries that we should be. That's awesome. What a great uh, way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Hi. this was fun. It was great good to see you. And yeah, really nice to catch up. And um, I will hope, hopefully we can continue sometime and I will let you know when we go live. Thank you, go live. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm going to stop the recording. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.